So, okay. I have a, a video clip uh, that I am going to be running here in a second. Um, and I guess I'm going to let Jess start it, but I'm going to hit, did it not go through? Hmm. I did. Oh, my video clip disappeared. Okay, well, while she's figuring that out, I'm going to give you a little background. We're on Psalm 24. The book of Psalms um, is a unique collection of literature because it is a, uh, a conjoining of God and man. Like where it's not just man writing, you know, and, and inspired by the Spirit. It's man expressing his heart and his suffering and his pain and his fear and his worries and his joys and his happiness and his exaltations. Like it is that, like all, you know, with the Holy Spirit filling it and God speaking to us, it is a unique meeting point of God and man in the text. And it is powerful because of that. And Psalm 24 um, is a call to worship. It's actually in a series of psalms that all link together. Um, but this book was, a, uh, was a, like a, a hymnal almost, or a psalter, which I think is where the term comes from. Um, but it was, a, it was a worship manual. And so, like, you would use these at different times of the year for different occasions. Uh, we went by uh, one of the psalms earlier uh, in this several-year-long series uh, that was for the or, or, excuse me, coronation of a king. Um, in this particular instance, it is an announcement of the time of worship. And I, I was looking for, uh, you can just, you're going to run it through YouTube? Okay. I was looking for a, a good example of something um, in our culture that reflects what this is. And I, I ended up, we're going to be, I got a video clip. It's an older one, and probably three quarters of you have seen it. Um, but this is in the neighborhood of what is going on in this psalm. And I wanted to start with this because I wanted to portray the kind of energy that is, um, oh, let's hit pause here for a second. I just got a text from Marlene uh, for us to ask, asking us to pray for Vicky, uh, who is uh, her, her daughter, uh, and is, uh, she's actually been placed in hospice and is on a feeding tube now. Um, and I think they, they, yeah, I mean, that's awful. I, I, she's got um, Lou Gehrig's disease, and, and it's advancing very quickly, and apparently this, um, but she did get to visit, so that's a, that's a big positive but it's, it's not so positive that she's going into hospice. And so if we can stop and pray for, for that. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but it seems very important. Um, Heavenly Father, I Heavenly Father, I pray for, for Marlene and her family. I pray for, for just the, the brokenheartedness they must be feeling and for, the, for the, the, just the sadness of facing what's coming. And, and Lord God, I pray for a miracle um, for, for Vicki. And, and if, if not that, Lord God, I pray that you would give her comfort and, and give them all comfort in the knowledge that, that you know, Christ has paid our debts and that, that she's not coming to the end of the road, that she's becoming, coming to the beginning of it, Lord God. Help us to, help us to mourn like people who have, who have hope, who have hope that, that Christ has opened the way. And Lord God, I just, just help us as a community love Marlene and, and just help her as she's mourning, help her as she's, as she's experiencing sorrow over this, over this tragedy and, and be with Vicki's husband and, and her family. And, and Lord God, I just pray for your hand in that. Um, 
we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, this is a really bad transition. Uh, uh, all right. Um, my video, and I'm sorry, I, I, uh, and perhaps this may be a little more poignant. This is a, this is a clip from Steve Harvey um, where he talks about announcing the second coming of, of Christ. And, and it was supposed to be funny, actually. When he did it, it was supposed to be funny, and he was doing it in a secular venue to a non-believing audience. It wasn't a church setting, and it got away from him. And perhaps maybe it is, it, it, it's, it's, it's appropriate maybe because we know that in tragedy and in loss and in hurt, and when we wake up in the morning and we don't know how we're going to get out of bed today or keep going, we have this knowledge that Christ is coming back. Um, and that is a knowledge that should fill us with joy. And that's what the clip is. It's Steve Harvey announcing the second coming. And so I'm going to get out of the way and if I had the pleasure of bringing out yes. Christ, this is just how I would do it. It ain't got to be the way you do it. You might not think it's just right, but this is how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to list. He has done the impossible time after time. He hailed out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He's fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish, five loaves of bread. He can walk on water, turn water into wine. No special effects, no camera tricks. He has a headshot on every church fan across the country. Even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all kings, ruler of the universe, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, the bright and the morning star. Some say he's the rose of Sharon, and some say he's the prince of peace. Get up on your feet. Put your hands together and show your love for the second coming of the one and only. Yeah. Drop my notes before I start. Um, I really like that clip. Um, the Psalm 24 is an announcement of worship. It is um, something that would be read to pilgrims as they entered the temple for the first time. 
right? Um, it is, uh, and it was something that as it was read, these are people who would have traveled sometimes thousands of miles um, to stand in the temple and worship. And so, like, like if you can imagine um, traveling from, say, Greece to Israel, um, which, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of miles that is, but it was a several-month trip. Um, the, the distance that people would go in heat and misery and difficulty just to stand in the temple and worship God was, was no small thing. And actually, it connects in a huge way with where, what we experience as believers. But this would have been read to them, and they would have, I mean, if you can imagine just a large crowd of worshipers who traveled for months to be in this presence and might only go to the temple a couple of times or just once in their lifetime, they would be energized, right? And everybody would know this by heart. Um, it's a liturgy. And some of y'all have come from more liturgical backgrounds where in the beginning of worship you would read a response, you know? You, you know, uh, you know. I, well, anyway, I can't remember any of the liturgies that I learned as a kid uh, when I first started going to church. But the, the, the idea was that the priest would say something and then you would say the response. And this sequence is a liturgy. And there are two questions that the audience would ask and the priest would make announcements. Now, the thing that drove me crazy, absolutely crazy when I was a kid and I started going to church, I was maybe... 13 or, or something, and it was this Lutheran church in Alabama, and we would uh, sit, and, and they would do this responsive reading, and like, I was the only one, I think, who was brand new, and so I would read these things, and I was excited about them, and we do like the creeds, we don't do creeds in the Church of God, but I was excited about them, and it always sounded like everybody else was super bored, you know what I mean? And like, like understand, as we do this, the effect is supposed to be more like this, right? I, the alternate version I, I was going to open with as an introduction, and I think I used it once before is why I skipped it, was like uh, if you've ever seen like boxers come to the ring and they start, you know, the, the sultan of, or, well, that'd be Babe Ruth as a sultan of SWAT, the, you know, the king of sting, the, you know, the master of disaster, and, you know, and people are getting up and they're sh- shouting and cheering. That's the idea here, Okay. Um, and before we jump into that, like real quick, there's a sequence, and this is cool, and I never noticed it until I started preaching through this series. Um, Psalm 21 is the king asking for God's strength, right? God, save me. I'm in trouble. God, save me. I'm in the midst of disaster. God, I need rescuing. Please, please, please step up and fight for me. Psalm 22 is the story of like misery as Christ dies and provides us the salvation that Psalm 20, 22, or 21 is asking for. God save me, and God responds by sending Christ, who cries out in the very beginning of the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, as Christ suffered on our behalf, we are saved. We receive Psalm 21 because of Psalm 22, when Christ carried the weight of our sins. You get to Psalm 23, everybody knows it. And it's impossible to preach it really well without talking for hours. Um, And I know it feels like I talk for hours, but I generally try to keep it under a half. Um, And what we talked about last week primarily was 
The idea that God is with us in all circumstances, in the misery, in the dirt, in the muck, in the hot spots of our lives, in the times when we're miserable and hopeless, and the times when we receive comfort and, like, peace. Um, okay. Uh, that doesn't... Aha! There we are. Um, and so, like, like, understand, Psalm 23 is this, God has saved me, and now I am assured, even in my hardest moments, that I am saved. That he is watching over me. Everybody with me? So we get to Psalm 24. Um, Psalm 24 connects with Psalm 23 in a weird way. Psalm 23, part of the imagery that I did not talk about. I made the specific choice not to talk about it because I wanted to emphasize what I emphasized. Um, But part of the subtext of Psalm 23 is the exodus, right? God's people leave Egypt They get into the desert, and they are there for way, way longer than they were supposed to be, right? It was like my kids trying to get ready in the morning to get them into the promised land. It just kept going and going and going, and God fed them in the desert and gave them water in the desert and protected them from armies and and all this other stuff. And part of the the message of Psalm 23 is, look, um, though I'm walking in the hot places— God gives me, you know, God gives me comfort and he's with me. Though I'm hungry, he brings me to green pastures. When I'm thirsty, he gives me water. And part of the imagery there is coming, coming to Zion, right? Coming to Israel, coming to the home that God has pro- promised and is providing for his people. And then Psalm 24 is this call to worship and this entry into the temple. But it's also a remembrance that, guys, we were wandering and now we're here, Right? You all with me? Everybody, nobody's falling asleep yet? Um, And so we're going to do a little bit of call and response here because it's part of what we're doing. And so just be aware um, that this is a part of what we're going to be doing. Um, Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2. Um, Verses 1 to 2 are um, just the announcement and the primary theme. It would be the very first thing the priest would say. He would step up and he would say, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, we hear that, and like part of it is like, you know, hey guys, we're going to worship. Everybody put your hands together, right? God created everything, and everything belongs to him. For the ancient Jews, the understanding was that not only did God create the world, but he sustained it. And we continue to believe this. If God were to draw his hand or his attention away from the creation, it would cease to exist because the creation is entirely dependent on him. Um, The Jews were unique in the ancient world because they do not, did not, and continue to not believe that reality existed prior to God. Like God created everything out of nothing um if you look at every and actually this if you were an ancient citizen you would recognize something kind of kind of offensive in what is said in verses one to two it's a controversial passage but nobody heard that did you because we all live thousands of years later um every ancient pagan um myth regarding the creation of the world involves one set of k you know gods lowercase g gods fighting another set of lowercase gods, right? And, like, like there's one account where the god gets angry and cuts, you know, cuts another god in half, and the guts spill out, and the guts spilling out is what created the world, okay? 
Um, a common one in Canaan, like a Canaanite myth, was that the water gods fought against the gods, and the death of the water gods brought about the creation of the world, right? If we go to Genesis 1, um, it is really hard to miss the fact that, like when you're looking at this, right? Hold on, let me... I can find Genesis 1 on my bookmarks there, so... Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the, Holy, or, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning of the first day. Um, now... It goes on, and God is commanding the waters to do things and bringing land out and all this. But um, this parallels what the psalm is starting with, right? God created everything and set things on the waters, right? Um, which is very much thumbing its nose at the Canaanites and saying, you know what? Your gods are just water. There is nothing there. Your beliefs are chaos. And he's going to double down on that in a few verses because this is a we're better than you, right? This is Steve Harvey standing up and saying, you know, I am here to introduce a God that is better than all other gods. You know, Baal and Mammon and, and um, Marduk and all these other pagan gods, like they think they know what's going on, but my God exists and those don't. And the people would cheer, you know, God created all things. He set the creation in order. He sustains and, like, owns. And actually, he watches over the creation in such a way that not a hair can fall from one of our heads without his will being a part of it. And, like, one sparrow can't fall to the ground without God allowing it to happen. Like, everything is in his hands. Are you all with me? Nobody's sleeping yet? I'm not going to get an amen chorus. Steve Harvey didn't get me warmed up enough. <laughs> Um, so the announcement, the priests announced, like, like God has created all things. And then the question, I want you guys to read this and do it with some energy. I don't want to, I don't want it to be sleepy, sleepy announcement, right? Because, because this is how this would have been done originally. Everybody can see it. All right. Who? Okay. Ah, that was all right. The next one, there's only two of these, so like the next one, you guys bring it. I'm not kidding. Um, it's possibly the case that this question would have been answer, asked several times. But the idea is the crowd is standing at the gate of the temple, and they're getting ready to come into the temple. And they would say, they would ask, who can even come in? Now, understand here, like when Isaiah was in the temple and he saw God, right? He saw God like there on his throne and the angels and like, like the, the worshiping, you know, cherubim and all this. Like he sees God there. His very first thing is, oh no, I'm in trouble. Like I've seen the face of God. Like I've seen God's glory. I'm undone. I'm in trouble because the ancient Jews believed and we continue to believe this, that you cannot enter the presence of God unprepared. Right? You cannot just enter the presence of God because God's 
holiness is a consuming fire. It eats everything that is unholy because the unholy cannot be in God's presence. And in fact, actually, we see a really cool example of this in the Gospels where Jesus is walking in a crowd and a woman who was ritualistically unclean touched him. And the idea was that if that happened, Jesus would have been made unclean ritualistically. But because his holiness is a consuming fire, she was made clean. And like her blood thing, I'm not talking about that this morning, um, went away and she was cured because she had to be ritualistically clean to touch the holiness of Christ. That's huge, isn't it? I mean, like, so you say, how do I even enter God's presence? If you walked into God's, like, like when they were in the desert and God is on Mount Sinai and there's clouds and storms and everything. If you wanted to see the face of God, you sure could. You could walk up the side of that mountain and about halfway up, you would dissolve and become nothing because God's holiness would consume you. You cannot, cannot be in God's presence imperfect. And so the question is, how do we ascend God's holy hill? This is the holy hill is probably a reference, by the way, to the temple, which was originally built on a hill, like a big mountain, right? And then the second temple, when Herod built, or the third temple, when Herod builds it, technically second, anyway, he levels it out and turns it into a giant platform. And so if you go onto the Temple Mount now, it was originally a mountain that they built walls around and they filled them with dirt and put a floor in and it. That's Mount Zion, like the, the holy place. And so he says, well, who can enter this holy, this, this holy hill? Who can be in his place? That's what they're referencing. Like on the edge of Jerusalem, there is a point where people would climb up, and that's where you would do your worship. And there was a temple there under Solomon. Um, he, so you all have asked your question. And then the priest stands up and he says, so who can enter God's presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Does that sound familiar? As Jeremy sang about that earlier, did a great job of picking songs. Um, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. We're going to read this whole thing, but I'm going to do this bit by bit. Okay, watch this. Clean hands, the idea behind this is um, it means that you don't have blood on your palms, right? The, the, the idiom there, like the, the Hebrew phrasing, is a reference to blood on your palms. Like, so who can come into God's presence? Somebody who is not doing evil stuff, right? Literally not doing evil stuff. Um, so you need to have clean hands to be in God's presence, but it doesn't end there. A pure heart. Um, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, is probably the best example of this. As you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you can find all these great um, things where Jesus sets the standard so impossibly high that nobody can reach it, right? Um, for example, uh, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, right? That's an easy one not to do. All I have to do is not have a physical relationship with a woman who I ain't married to, and I am good. He says, but I tell you the truth. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus says, listen, it's not enough to have clean hands. You must have a pure heart. And there are a lot of folks who will say, oh, well, I'm okay. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm just looking, right? I'm just hanging out on those websites. I'm just checking out these spots where, where you know, I, I just have to erase my history and it never happened, right? Like, and it's not adultery because I'm just looking. I'm, I'm married, not dead. We justify it in all kinds of ways. But in reality, 
a pure heart is not just having clean hands. It's having a heart that desires to be holy. Um, It's having a heart that is in harmony with God's law and God's holiness in its desires. Um, It's not enough to not murder, you can't hate. It's not enough to not steal, you shouldn't want stuff that doesn't belong to you. And so he says, listen, who's acceptable to come into God's presence? Well, people who aren't doing evil and people who are, are not desiring to do evil. Who's got that nailed down this morning, by the way? <laughs> Me neither. You notice my hand didn't go up. Um, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. A lot of translations render this, um, does not lift up his soul to idols or does not worship idols. Um, the, the Greek here, or the Hebrew, sorry, um, the, the, I have it in my notes. If I can hunt it down real quick, I can tell you what the Hebrew, no, I'm just going to mispronounce it anyway. Um, the, the phrasing here is, um, he doesn't offer his, his soul or he doesn't offer the, like the source of who he is or the essence of who he is, or like he doesn't offer himself like the core of himself. Um, to what is false. And what is false in a lot of instances is rendered idols, but the word is literally emptiness. Like, so I don't offer myself to emptiness. And if you think about it, right, emptiness is all anything is that isn't what God has created, right? And this is a poke, again, at, we go back to the seas, your gods are nothing. This is nothing. Anything that you offer yourself to that is not God, is something that he's created. And it's something that if he withdraws his hands, it would cease to be. Like, it doesn't make sense. If you wa- offer your soul, if you offer yourself to money, to, to bitterness, to, to um, materialism, to pornography and, like, sex and, you know, or food or, or drugs or alcohol or, or anything that isn't God. Like, if you're giving your source, yourself, to those things... You can't step into God's presence. Does that mean we have to be perfect? No. And does not swear deceitfully um, is the last bit of verse 4, meaning that your tongue is clean, your mouth um, is honest. Uh, Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now watch this. Um, he'll receive blessings from the Lord, meaning that, like, I don't raise myself up to, to pagan idols. Instead, I raise myself up to the Lord, and he blesses me. But also, righteousness from the God of his salvation. Righteousness, the word there is vindication, right? And under Jewish legal understanding, this is a little weird, right? Um, in our culture, you're innocent until proven guilty, right? In that culture, you're innocent if the judge says you're innocent. And literally, it would be... I proclaim you innocent. I proclaim you vindicated or righteous. Righteous means to be in a proper standing before God or in right relationship with God. And the only one who can declare that is the judge who is God himself. And so the only way you can be righteous, the only way you can have clean hands and a pure heart is for God to declare you righteous. In that world, you had to like 
like do your best with the law and you had to keep your heart right. They knew you weren't going to be perfect. But if God decided that you were like in good enough, he would declare you righteous. It wasn't of your own effort. It was God's work. We as believers understand that because Jesus died for our sins, because Christ carried the weight of our sins, he is punished in our place, and then God declares us righteous. And so because Christ died for me, because I am covered in the blood of the Lamb, because I am washed by his sacrifice for me, I can be declared righteous. He can call me vindicated. By the way, reading this, I, again, like the crowd is there saying, we have been declared righteous. It's, you know, if you can imagine Steve Harvey saying, anybody who Christ has said is acceptable is acceptable. That's something to cheer about, right? Because when I think about my wickedness, when I think about my sin, the very last thing in the world I deserve is vindication. What I deserve is vindictiveness. What I deserve is God's wrath. What I receive is grace. And so as we stand before God and say, hey, it's time to come and worship, like, say, well, who's acceptable? Those who belong to Christ are acceptable. Those who belong to Christ can come into God's presence, can step into the temple. Um, Now, here's where this is going to get tricky, just a second. Um... Such is the generation of those who seek him, uh, who seek the face of God of Jacob, um, Selah. And so, like, that's the end of the verse. And, like, part of what's going on here is they've reached this point where they're like, hey, you know what? Everybody who's seeking after God in this generation, they are acceptable to stand before God. Um, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So they're about to open the gates and let people into the temple. And they say, lift up your head, O gates really weird thing like the gates didn't lift it wasn't a portcullis it was a door like and it wasn't a gate at all it was a door Um, but it's a figure of speech and part of the figure of speech might be uh, because lifted and be lifted up oh ancient doors um, the doors like until much after the psalm had been written the doors of the temple were just not that old Um, like this would have been a pretty new text um, the ancient doors or like, like timeless doors is probably a reference to heaven. And the idea here is raise yourself up with hope, raise yourself up with joy and recognize that God is stepping out of eternity and the king of glory is coming in to meet us at the temple. Like, wow, the God who created everything, the God who is eternal, the God who made everything before him, everything that we can worship is nothing is going to come and meet us in the temple. The eternal meets the temporal, right? Which is exactly what happens when we come to know Christ and Christ, like, steps into our world, right? Like, when Christ first came, it was God stepping into the world. Like, it was him standing in the presence of man. And suddenly the holy, holy, holy of the temple was wherever Jesus was standing. And then actually we as believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, and suddenly it's no longer the temple, that location where God meets man. It is us, right? And that's the thing to cheer about, but it's also the thing to be kind of scared about because it means that, like, oh, I don't have a chance to wash up before I walk in the temple. I'm taking it with me. 
Like I'm supposed to live this life of worship all the time. And I'm supposed to wake up in the morning and say, thank God for everything I have received. And I'm supposed to, you know, look at, at you know, these, these girls on, you know, magazine covers as I'm in the grocery store aisle. And I'm supposed to say, that's a, that's a daughter of the king. That's somebody that God created and loves who's degrading herself like that. And that's offensive. Anybody got that nailed down? I see no hands. <laughs> and there's a reason. Um, like, like the transition, when you put this in context of Christianity, it's amazing. For the ancient Jews, they're standing around the gate. They're about to get to come in. It's like Disneyland opening its doors. Only you get to, like, be in the presence of God. And they would have cheered. They would have been excited. And the announcement, the king of glory is coming. And then the crowd would have shouted back in response. Oh, my gosh, I want that better. Come on. I, I heard good, good News Club do this kind of thing better. <laughs> Let's do it. To which the priest would respond, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And I'm saying to you today, part of what is attached to this is... Um, Guys, your heart, the temple of the Holy Spirit inside of you, lift up those gates, be filled with joy and hope, and let the Lord come in. Because you are not walking into God's presence when you walk into my sanctuary, our sanctuary, this sanctuary. That was really badly phrased. You are not walking into God's presence when you turn on the stream. You are in God's presence when you know Christ. He has filled you. You're... You're taking him with you. You are like you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lift up those ancient doors, lift them up, and the Holy Spirit fills you. The Lord strong and mighty. By the way, um, a little bit of a tidbit of information here. Um, a lot of times they would read this psalm as the Ark of the Covenant was coming back from battle. And so they would, um, you would have the Ark of the Covenant led by a procession of soldiers, like at the, or leading a procession of soldiers to the temple, and they would be putting the Ark of the Covenant back into the Holy of Holies. And the idea was they would take the Ark of the Covenant out, God would lead their army, and then they would bring him back to the temple, right? Um, and so, like, they would be bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, the, the place where you would pour out the blood of the sacrifice as a representation of, like, the, the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Like, there's a whole lot of weight in this, right? Like, there's a whole lot of symbolism. And so, like, open the gates because the, the Ark is coming back. The thing that is, like, where God's glory is manifest in this world, in the temple, is coming back. And God has won a mighty battle for us. In this case, the mighty battle God won was in Psalm 22, when Christ hung on the cross and fought the battle with sin and death on our behalf. But now it's in. Now it goes with us. And I'm going long, but I don't care. Um, one more. And so they would come to the end. They would say, the the. The king of glory is coming. He said, well, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord strong and mighty. He has won our battles for us. He is saving us. He is delivering us. And they say, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And the crowd would 
scream and cheer and celebrate because they're stepping into the presence of God. And I'm standing here today to tell you, every one of you who knows Christ, like, you don't have to do all of this. Christ has made your hands clean and the Holy Spirit is in you and you are called to live your lives as living sacrifices. We're called to live lives of worship. This is a song that we should sing every morning when we get up and we recognize, man, the King of glory is living in me. The King of glory is here in my house, in my heart. He has made me clean. He has washed away my sins. He has poured out his son's blood on my behalf. And the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, fills me. And then I have to ask, do I live like that's true? Yikes. <laughs> Anybody got that nailed down? Am I filling myself with Christ? Am I consuming things that glorify God? Am I desiring to know Him more? Am I, am I, am I living a life of worship? We worry about all kinds of things, um, you know, in our church building. But any bitterness and anger in our hearts, any lust in our hearts, any selfishness in our hearts, any pride in saying, I did this, God had nothing to do with it. Any ignoring God, like all of that stuff. There's us... We might as well be drawn on the floor of, the, of God's real sanctuary, the sanctuary in us. The King of Glory has come. We're going to finish with something that Anne asked me to do, but I didn't do what she asked me to do. Um, we're going to take a few minutes. Um, Jeremy's going to sing that last song, uh, that Give Us Clean Hands for Us one more time. I want you to sing, but at the same time, if you feel called, I want you to, I want you to pray instead. And pray that we would have clean hands and pure hearts and that we would bring the Holy Spirit with us into this world. Because, guys, turn on the TV. The world is broken. The world is sick. The world is filthy. We're, we're, I don't know if we're getting worse or if you're just seeing it a little better right now. We're hating our neighbors. We're, we're bitter towards folks that, that are innocent. We're, you know, in some instances, we're bitter towards folks who don't look like us just because they don't look like us. Like, and God's solution to that is for us to bring the Holy Spirit. For us to bring his son and his gospel to the world. You could fix every government in the world and they would a year later become wicked again. Because filthy hearts are the problem. The solution we have to this country's problems, the solution we have to this world's problems is Christ. The solution I have to my problems with, with selfishness or lust or arrogance or whatever is Christ. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ isn't in America. He's in you. Christ isn't in Europe. He's in you. Our job is to put him in the people who are broken and hurting and dying. Let's sing, let's worship, and ask yourself, am I a temple? And if you feel called, you can come forward and pray. We don't do this very often. Um, if you feel called, you can just kneel down and pray or sit and pray, or you can talk to God however you feel called to do it. Um, but ask yourself, how am I making this world more Christ-like? 
How am I responding to people who are hurting? How am I responding to people who are angry? Am I one of the three stooges? <laughs>